From the EBKB studios in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, you're listening to BPW Radio on Brotherly Pod with your hosts, Bobby, Mike, and Dan. BPW Radio here on Brotherly Pod. It is... I have no idea what day it is today. Why did I open with that? October 22nd, 2019. The Flyers are 3-3-1. Three, three and one. Good enough for 7 points, which is 6th in the Metro. Uh, they have finally won a game last night against the Vegas Golden Knights in a big way after a 4-game losing streak in which they played some... Good hockey, but some very bland, boring hockey, especially offensively, uh, especially given all the offensive uh, shots on goal they had. So, uh, Mike, what have you seen out of the Flyers since the last time we talked? Yeah, so I think that they have been up and down, obviously. The uh, the four-game losing streak was a bit of a surprise um, after the Chicago game to start the season and then the great home win against the Devils. And we were riding really, really high after that. I was not expecting them to lose four straight at all. Um, but they seem to have righted the ship at least a little bit against Vegas with a massive goal outpouring. And they're about where I thought they would be right now uh, through seven games. Yeah, more or less. Uh, they came to Vancouver from Philadelphia after coming back from Prague. They came out slow in that game. Eventually he's played very well in the third, but they lost in a shootout. Uh, lost to the Flames in probably the ugliest game of the season thus far. They got blown up by the Oilers 6-3. to three. Um, But they did a lot of good in that game. Went out to Stars very similar to the Edmonton game. They played well systematically, but they still got beat big time. Finally, that played uh, paid off against the Vegas Golden Knights with a 6-2 victory. So, you know, those games were ugly losses, were very boring hockey games, but these scores don't necessarily tell the whole story of what the Flyers were doing because systematically they did play a very strong game, especially defensively. Yeah, and it is a little bit frustrating to start considering process over results again, which we've been doing for so many years now. But there is uh, some truth in that at this point because we have a new coaching staff, we have new players on the team, and these guys still are adjusting. And they do get a bit of a free pass, I guess, for the first couple of weeks of the season. I mean, not to say that they need to be tanking um, or anything like that, but there is an adjustment period here. And I think that if we are seeing solid systems out of the team which seems to be happening now that is generally a step in the right direction yeah and and i know nobody wants to hear it i used the term transition year you know we've been promised that for hell four years now but i i do feel that this is the true quote-unquote transition year of this team and the overall play you know especially with the new coach it's going to take a while you know he has been uh giving kind of everybody chances to play and grow and uh, we'll talk about that in a minute with shane goss spare but overall you know he really has been he, he's trying to see what he has and and i appreciate that it's going to take time but uh you know i i can't i'm angry at the team don't get me wrong because it sucks seeing these games and hearing the word process again but it does seem like this process is actually going somewhere versus Ron Hextall, who was just saying that for the sake of saying it. Yeah, yeah. I think that we're seeing a coach that knows what he's doing at this point. I think today there were a couple tweets from some of the beat writers about how the Flyers kind of did a chalk talk 
type of um, uh, practice instead of a typical practice where they broke off into segmented groups to do maybe some video review and some play reviews and system reviews, um, which is something that we didn't really see a whole lot of under multiple other coaching regimes. So I kind of like that AV and his staff are throwing those things into the mix right now. Well, the Flyers have played only a couple home games so far this season, one of them being the Dallas Stars, a game you went to. Uh, that was your first experience at the new and improved Wells Fargo Center. You want to tell everybody what your uh, experience was like? Yeah, sure. So it was my first time down there uh, this season. And um, as you guys know from us from a previous podcast, I, I still maintain season tickets, which uh, I don't know how much longer that'll last. But I, I go to about maybe 18 to 20 games a year. And this was my first one of the year. And it was pretty interesting to see how the environment has changed uh, as compared to last season. Um, the first thing you notice when you go in is a scoreboard. It is, it looks pretty cool on TV, but when you see it up close, it really is unfreaking believable. Uh, it has these these two giant panels that are kind of curved, like those fancy newish uh, Samsung televisions um, that are just like I can't even estimate how big they are. But the scoreboard is probably like five times bigger than it used to be, and it has this. Um, I think I describe it. It's kind of like a cylindrical. Um, upper echelon to it that goes up and down and during the player introductions there's some pyrotechnics and flames that are shot out of it which is like really cool they never did that shit in the past so that was pretty cool to see uh and one thing that was really strange to me was was how gritty operated um uh, during this game and obviously he started there last year and you know he's just the mascot whatever but he's pretty crazy so this year I noticed that they're taking Gritty to the next level where not only is he doing antics and things in the stands, but he's doing them during the game and in front of people and purposely distracting people in their seats from what's going on on the ice. And in fact, at, at one point he was in my section during the first period and I don't know what he was doing. He had like a Dallas Stars fan and he was like spraying silly string on her head or something. And he motioned to the crowd and then motioned back at the ice as if what was going on during the game was cl- was completely immaterial and completely irrelevant. <laughs> it was it was like hilarious because it's he was like, oh, there's hockey, whatever. Screw that. Watch me instead. <laughs> well, you know, a lot of people have theorized over the last year that that's why he was here is to kind of distract uh, from the uh, atrocious on-ice product, and especially that Dallas game. I'm sure I would have much rather paid attention to Gritty than anything they were doing in that game anyway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, the first the first minute and a half was amazing. That goal that they had to start the game was phenomenal. And as soon as they did that, you know, they ring in uh, with their new goal song uh, uh, by Jet Boy, which is actually a pretty good song. Um, it's a lot better than that circus trance as i was calling it that they got from uh, from dj michael delzato about five or six years ago which i thought was just a fucking joke i don't know what was your opinion of that song <laughs> i i for the most part don't notice i noticed it last night because they played yeah. it five freaking times in a couple minutes yeah, yeah. so I, I did notice it i'm not a fan but i haven't really been a fan of any song they've had for quite some time now so I, yeah. it's, it's one of those things that people get very heated over, but I never really seem to care because I didn't even notice what the last one was until I, I you know, heard it on the uh, – I was going back and listen, uh, watching some highlights from last season, and I saw it. I was like, oh, all right, whatever. But, you know, I don't pay it too much attention, but last night I was – yeah, it's, it's whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't like it at all. It, like, it bothered me because it was like – 
I don't know what it was. It was some sort of like mix or like amalgamation of like, I mean, circus trance is the best way that I can describe what it used to be. <laughs> and then they were saying, oh, well, the players like it. They don't like that shit. They don't have any taste in music. <laughs> they just they just like whatever's played. So I didn't really buy that either. But uh, yeah, you're right. The Jet Boy song after the Vegas game was just played so many freaking times, which is great. But uh, it's growing on me a little bit. Well, after that Dallas game, when they got blown out of the water again, they made some roster moves, called up Joel Farabee and Misha Vorobiev, sent Carson Torinsky back down to the Phantoms. Farabee played last, well, Farabee and Vorobiev both played last night. Vorobiev got an assist, Farabee still pointless. What did you see out of those two in their uh, NHL debut and return to the NHL? Yeah, they looked really good. It was a bit of a surprise to me that they called them up. I know some people were like, oh, I predicted this, but I I was not so sure that they were going to bring at least Farabee up because I thought they would give him a little more time with the Phantoms to get kind of acclimated to the pro game. But it seems like it was a good choice uh, with Farabee and with Vorobiev. I thought their positioning was phenomenal. And I know that AV had complimented them after the game for how well that they played on the defensive end and at the neutral zone. And Farabee had a couple of scoring chances. He had one right in front of the net that almost went in. Um, but it looks like those guys fit. They definitely added some sort of spark to the lineup. Um, Vorobiev on the fourth line centering it was great and and I guess Farabee was on the third line and he looked like he fit right in yeah uh, you know I, I, they did talk about calling players up in the first six weeks and changing up the roster I didn't know what that meant I didn't think it would be Farabee I thought Vorobiev would be up there I thought maybe Rubsov would be the other one um, but Vorobiev looked good he's quietly had a pretty decent season with the Phantoms thus far Farabee has obviously been great in the I believe he played four games now uh, yeah, Farabee on the Phantom. I mean, he's been great to start the season. He's looked good in the four games uh, with the, uh, I believe he had three goals, maybe four. I don't remember. I don't have to pull up the stats here. But yeah, I mean, f I, I was not expecting Frost up. He's not ready. I know he had a goal and three assists this weekend. But yeah, he's just physically, especially, I don't think he's quite ready for this league. But it is good that he's taken a step in the right direction. But yeah, I mean, other than Rubsov right now, I'm not surprised that they called Vorobiev uh, uh, up. So Overall looking good. I hope those two can continue. And, I mean, if they can both provide a spark to this team's bottom six, the Flyers are going to be great, especially if that top line right now can get going. Yeah, I think their presence is great. And for as well as Carson Twinsky did play, at least in the preseason, and he, he held his own up here a bit too in the NHL. Um, I don't know if Connor Bunneman was ready either to take on really a full-time role, even in a fourth-line capacity. But if you can get Vorobiev to play solid 4C – and Farabee, I'm sure, is going to continue to develop and to contribute at this level. Um, I think they're on the right track with those guys. Yeah, I, I agree as well. Um, you wanted to read a tweet out here? Yeah, so yeah, so this, this goes back to the Dallas game a little bit, which we just had touched on a few minutes ago. And, um, you know, the game was – I was getting into that first minute and a half, and it really was very good. But then after that – the game was awful. And a lot of people, and I know that you and Anthony had touched on on kind of the you know, the analytics crowd going after the positives of the team, regardless of the results, regardless of kind of what they're seeing. But I think that I want to point something out that I've noticed over the years in that there's a difference between watching the games on television um, or if you're a media member not having to pay to go watch them. Versus a fan that actually pays money to sit in that seat every night. 
And I got some backlash after the Dallas game. I kind of went off on a little bit because the game was just so god-awful to watch. When you paid money on a Saturday night to go watch it, they score one goal at the beginning of the game and then basically do nothing for the remainder of it. And, and people were complaining to me that I had a problem with the way they played simply because the underlying metrics were good and they were doing the right thing and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, I think there's a fundamental difference when you watch the game on TV and you don't have to pay for it because when you go to the game, it sounds stupid, but you got to plan your day around it and you tell people that you're going, you got to go there and park, you get out of your car, you sit in your seat, you watch the game. You can't just, you can't just, you know, walk away or change the channel. You've invested your time and money into it. And like I was saying, I go to about 18 to 20 games a year and and then I watch the rest on TV, and it's a lot different. When you're there, you want to see the team do well, and you want to see them entertain you. You want to see them put on a show and make it worth your time and money for why you're there. And I feel like a lot of folks that don't go to games a lot, um, and it doesn't have to be just Flyers games, just any sporting events, people that continually watch on TV, or if you're paid media, then you really don't appreciate or have an understanding as to the amount of time and effort that people are going through on stuff. And after the game, there was one tweet, and I really like Bill Meltzer a lot. I think he does a great job with the team, but sometimes he's a little bit of a shill. And I wanted to read this one out. He goes, this was, um, I guess, on Saturday after the game. One of the ways, actually, I'm sorry, this is after the Vegas game, after they won. He goes, one of the ways you could tell tonight was a good night for the Flyers. The social media denizens that are only happy being miserable were conspicuously quiet on this night. Well, Bill... When's the last time that you paid and had to go to a Flyers game? You probably haven't paid for a ticket in 15 years. And, you know, I think the folks that have a problem with the way that the team plays in a very boring style and, you know, oh, the analytics were good, the structure was good, all that stuff. I don't know if he's fully appreciating that. And I see a lot of other folks that don't go to games in general kind of echo that. And it does kind of piss me off. So sorry for that soliloquy, but what say you on that? I, I think this is actually an interesting one. You know, I'm not a media member. I'm not credentialed. I live about an hour and 15 minutes away from Philadelphia on a good day. It's been over a season and a half, I believe, since I was at a Flyers game in the Wells Fargo Center, simply because I'm not going to drive an hour and a half, maybe more in traffic on a on a weekday night, to watch the Flyers get their shit kicked in. If I went down there, you offered me a spot on Saturday, and I was going at the Phantoms game, so I couldn't uh, accompany you, but you offered me a spot, and I was like, man. You know, there, there was, and no offense to you at all, but there was no part yeah. of my brain where I was like, man, I want to drop everything I'm doing and get down there. You know, because yeah. I'm just, it's a bad product. And listen, Anthony and I did a 50-minute rant on fans and analytics and, and all that fun stuff on Sunday. So go back and listen to that show if you have not yet, because it's a good one. But I just, it's frustrating as a fan, as a paying customer to watch something that is so fucking subpar for the fifth, sixth, seventh year in a row, whatever we're at now. You know, it's been almost a decade. Hell, it has been a decade since they made it to the finals. You know, 2012 was the last time I remember even having fun watching this team. You know, it's been a long time. And the fans being angry at a subpar product is totally within their right. 
And of course nobody's going to be angry after the Golden Knights game. They blew the fucking team out of the water 6-2 to two or 3, whatever the fuck they finished with. <laughs> of course nobody's going to be angry. But, you know, going back, and I, I will touch upon some of the stuff Anthony and I talked about on Sunday. These games that are complete horseshit, even though they're playing well. In the uh, Calgary-Edmonton-Dallas games were examples of that. They played well systematically, analytically, whatever you want to call it. They had decent games. The defense was fine. The goaltending was a little weak, and they weren't scoring goals. But it's well within my right as a fan to be fucking annoyed that the team can't score any goals, especially when it's your top three players that are making 7 and $8 million a year. Okay, you got to demand excellence from a team. I'm not here for moral victories, okay? Moral victories are something I'm done talking about. I'm tired of, yeah, well, they played fine. JVR has 35 shots on goal through the first seven games, but he doesn't have any actual goals. But but he'll score eventually. Yeah, no shit, it's hockey. Of course he'll score eventually. You know, it's just as a fan, I am tired of watching subpar hockey. And... I know it's not going to happen overnight, and I wasn't even really so much expecting it to happen in the season. We were talking about it before. You know, this is the transition year, but I want to see results, and I don't blame fans for being angry, and especially watching four straight games where they didn't play very well. So I, I, I get it as a fan, and it, when I see things like that from people, the, the holier-than-thou crowd, it just it, it really does kind of really uh, piss me off. Yeah, and it would be different, you know, if the Flyers went out there and it was kind of a you know, like a 4-3 game with a couple bit of lead changes here. They had some good moments, they had some bad moments. It was an entertaining product. That's fine. I mean, if they're going to lose the game in that fashion, I I can get on board with that. But I think the people that invest all that time, that go into the stadium, that pay the money, that wait out the game. I mean, your whole day, you're looking forward to it. It's, I mean, your whole night is scheduled around it. Um, and I think if you if you do that over and over again, and this isn't five years ago when the team started this rebuilding process. I mean, people have sat through this shit for so long. And I just don't want to see the team do that anymore. And other people will be like, oh, well, you know, just don't go to the game. Okay, uh, I guess I won't, and I'll just sit and I'll be happy watching it from TV because I can turn it off whenever the fuck I feel like it, you know, like that sort of thing. I think the people that spend the money and time and continually go back and get beaten down are the ones that should be applauded because they're the ones that are putting forth the effort and the money, whereas the other crowd who hasn't even, you know – seen the flyers in in god knows how many years uh, they should be the ones that that are saying thank you for supporting my team and it's the paying customers especially under the hextall era it's the paying customers that seem to get shit on the most you know they didn't have a town hall last year they were very hush hush about the whole dave hextall thing and and it, it's that kind of inner working ever since snyder died there's just kind of been this I don't even know what the word would be. Kind of 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 two separate entities. You know, it, it feels like a corporation. It doesn't feel like a team anymore or family like it used to. You know, and again, you being a season tickled, I'm sure you can touch a little more upon that. But it, it feels very corporate now, and it feels not fun. And, and maybe that's why they tried the rage room and the gritty command center and whatever the hell else they did to the Wells Fargo Center to try and reestablish that connection with the fans that they kind of lost under Ron Hextall. Yeah, that's an interesting point, Dan. They have really escaped from a lot of the things that Ed Snyder wanted 
to happen and instilled in the franchise from the time that he started it in the 60s. And there's really two things that they have to do. You know, you can eliminate all the glitz and the glamour, but if they do these two things, people will love the team. One is win, and I understand that they can't always do that. But two is establish a connection with the players and coaches and the fans. And if you can do that, at least that connection, that's going to carry you so much further than a rage room or, yeah, the gritty command center or, you know, gritty banging his drum or, or doing hijinks during the game and distracting and stuff. And I think that they're trying to get away from that connection with the players and the coaches that fans had for so many decades leading up to the past maybe five or six years. Um, and it's really kind of strange. It's very, very strange the way that they're operating now because it's not that hard. It really is not hard. I, they used to do things like um, like summer barbecues with season ticket holders and the players. And you could go and hang out with them and you know eat hot dogs and drink beers and stuff. I mean like those are the types of things that, that can really foster a very loyal, loyal fan base. And you know, again, I'm not a season ticket holder. I've never been a season ticket holder with the Phantoms, but or with the Flyers rather. But I am with the Phantoms, and I have uh, season tickets for the Iron Pigs as well. And you know, they're right up the road. You know, it's it's a 15 minute drive to the Phantoms and a 25 minute drive to the to the Iron Pigs, and I feel included there. You know, and granted, it's minor league teams, so they do do more for the fans overall. But you know, it's that kind of it's a good environment, and. It's something that I have no interest in doing. Again, for the Flyers, that's a long way to go down to be shielded a corporate, you know, spiel and overall feeling. And just, I, I just don't, I don't have any interest in going down to the Flyers games just because it's such a, it would be such an extra hassle and burden and traffic and, and all this bullshit that I don't have to go through when I'm 15 minutes away from the Phantoms and they have a good on ice product. Yeah. And the team needs to. I think they need to establish a level of trust because there's so many times that you go to a home game. Like, let's say you were to come down to that Dallas game on Saturday. It takes you an hour and a half to get here. You know, your whole day is scheduled around this game. And they come out and they look great for, for like 90 seconds. And then it's boring as shit. And you're like, why the fuck am I here? And and when you do that continuously for years and years and years, and then, you know, oh, oh, they had a great process. You know, their courses were really good. And, you know, they got a lot of shots on goal, you know, from the half wall and just blasting away from the point six feet wide. I mean, like, we're so far past saying, okay, yeah, that's a great reason to go to the game. Oh, it's awesome. You know, they, they outshot the stars 52 to 19 or whatever it was. It's like, no, like, I have seen that so many times over and over again, like, that is not going to bring people to the game. And I think that's the point that I'm trying to get at here is that when you invest that amount of energy into something, you need to see more, especially at this point. Yeah, and it's a fan base that has been beaten down for years, you know. And and now the only bright thing that has happened over the last little while here is, well, their shot metrics are good. Well, that's fantastic. But if they're still losing, then I'm not interested in going to watch their damn product. You exactly. Know? And you can't ignore that. I mean, a lot of folks that I interact with, at least through Twitter, they they don't live around here. Uh, they may have never been to a Flyers game, ever, which is which is totally fine. But you can't ignore the importance that the paying customer in the seat 
has in terms of the overall operation and success of a franchise. It's a it's a critical element that a lot of people just gloss over. And, you know, they look at things like the draft picks and the process and development um, and how things are structured. And that's all good stuff. But at the end of the day, you have to have butts and seats that pay to see what's going on. And you have to appease those people. I mean, you can't just continually ignore them and then shit on them for being pissed off like Meltzer has kind of done in some of his tweets. So, you know, that's I'm happy that we're talking about this, Dan, because I think this is a topic that uh, has largely been left untouched over the years through a lot of uh, Flyers hockey podcasts. Yeah, I don't think it get touched upon because I think people, you know, dilute the issue by making it about analytics or making it about, you know, Flyers Twitter in general. And believe me, I do that. All right. Again, going back to that Sunday show, I, I screamed it for an hour about this shit. But, you know, it, it does come down to a personal level. And again, you're there as a scene ticket. I'm not. I'm watching this on TV and I can feel it through the TV that just nobody cares. That's not the Wells Fargo Center that was there in 2007 and eight when they were great or, or, you know, when the energy was there and before this Ron Hextall era, the 2009, 2010, the playoff run has there, you know, <laughs> the energy, the New Jersey Devils game, perfect example. When was the last time anybody felt that kind of entertainment from the Flyers with the exception of that New Jersey Devils game before that? Yeah, it's been since the cup run, probably. Probably. That's the, that's, I, I was yeah. either thinking the 2012 play, uh, Penguin series or if we're talking just regular season, probably the last game of the uh, 2010 season where they were able to uh, beat the Rangers in the shootout and go to the playoffs. That's the last time I can think of. I'm sure there was maybe a game here or there, but other than that, I have not been happy watching this team for fucking a decade now. Yeah, and I think that AV and his staff are really – I do have confidence in them to change this a lot, but you know, this is more of, a, I, I guess, a gut – uh, perception here, but the Flyers need to focus on games that have kind of an unwritten level of importance. For example, the Dallas game. The team is coming off of a three-game Western Canada road trip. They got, they lost all three games after a very good start to the season. You come back home for a Saturday night game to get off the schneid, get back in the win column, and really show your fans that we're a winning team this season and to continue that positive momentum that they had against New Jersey to start the season at home the, uh, the uh, prior week. There's this you know, unwritten inertia that was building in that game. And they came out and they laid a fucking egg. And they do that a lot. Like if you go through the ebb and flow of the seasons, and I know it's different coaching staff um, and different players over the years, but the Flyers tend to do this frequently. Uh, they have these unwritten inertia games where they're reaching kind of a pinnacle where, yeah, this is the time where we can really get people on board. And they come out at home and they fucking suck. And and I first noticed this uh, a couple of years ago during the um, 50th anniversary season. I don't know if you recall this game, but it was it was against the Arizona Coyotes at the beginning of the season. And it was the Hall of Fame night where they brought out every single Flyers legend. In fact, I got so much merchandise signed that night from, you know, all the all the guys from the 70s. They had the guys from the 80s, guys from the 90s. All the star players were there. It was an incredible moment. And they were playing the Coyotes that night. And the Flyers come out. There's all this momentum energy. And they come out and they freaking lay an egg. And they lose to the freaking Coyotes. It was like, it was like a horrible, horrible hockey game. And I was like, why? 
why do you need to do that with all this positive momentum and inertia that's coming up here? And ever since that game, I've been paying attention to the ebbs and flows. And the Flyers continually seem to fail us when we need them the most and when they're on the rise. And they only will come back once they've been kind of kicked back down again. Yeah, and I think they did the same thing the night they honored Eric Desjardins and they played the Wild. And they went out and they got beat like one nothing or something. And yeah. I think the night they honored uh, Lindros and LeClaire, it was pretty bad as well. Like, they te- hell, last season's season opener against the Sharks when they got their shit kicked in. You know, anybody remember that game? God, you know, it, they do tend to not step up when the games are important. And it, it's just, if you fill your arena for your 50th anniversary game and you bring on a legends and then you get your asses kicked. Like that's not going to inspire a lot of those people that may not be there otherwise, other than to enjoy the festivities. If you bring those people in and you put on a kick-ass game and you win, you know, you may get some new fans. I mean, you get some revenue. People may buy tickets more, you know, this Mm -hmm. is, it's a business minded thing where the team can't seem to back it up. But uh, yeah, it's definitely not unusual to see this team not be able to step up at a big moment. Oh my God, it's baffling. And this is interesting because this is more of a qualitative approach. You know, we talk in the quantitative terms constantly about statistics and wins and losses and, you know, how players are moving. But this is a very, like, very qualitative way that the team has been operating. And like I said, I do think that that Vigneault is is going to eradicate this at some point. I don't know if it'll be this season or not, but I don't think it's in his DNA to basically come out and falter when when the pressure is on and, and when things matter the most. Um, but it's a critical aspect. And if you go back in time, man, I swear, we could go back for the past three or four seasons and track the games and be like, oh, yeah, you know, they're on like some you know three-game winning streak and then they come home and, and the crowd's all there and then they come out and get shut out or something. And it's just, it happens all the time. It's, it's so freaking strange. Uh, but... Uh, they're going to have to change this because because they're never going to be able to get over the hump if they don't. Yeah, and going back to the Devils game, you know, that was the first time in forever, yeah. you know, or where they did something that seemed like a step forward for the people at home, you know. It's just then they come back home and completely shit the bed this past weekend. So Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was all over that Devils game. I was like, this is amazing. This is so awesome. Like, it was so much positivity. Uh, and you need to continue that. And so that's, you know, something to look for as we move forward here. And some of the guys, goaltending-wise, that are, you know, responsible for carrying that weight, Carter Hart. You know, I knew going into the season, I, I, I was just talking about this on B. I love goaltending. I always have. It's my favorite position. I studied this stuff at length. It's not uncommon for sophomore goaltenders to struggle, and sometimes for that even to spill over into their junior year. You know, it, it takes time for them to grow out the game. Carter Hart seems to be no exception to the rule. I think people built this kid up a lot. I think people put a lot of weight on him, but I don't think he's you know expected this. He has a uh, 259 goals against and an 890 save percentage thus far. Elliott, a 255 GAA and 925 save percentage. He absolutely stood in his head last night against the Golden Knights. That game probably should have been more of like a 6-7 to game versus a 6-2 to game, um, but Goaltending, uh, you know, not leaning well. Carter Hart, a little slow to the season. What do you make of the position thus far? Yeah, um, I am. 
I guess I'm not surprised. Um, I was surprised with Brian Elliott last night against Vegas. I mean, that was a really incredible performance by him. I think Hart has been okay. I think he's had a couple of struggles here and there, but I really don't think he's been that bad. Um, he seems to be having maybe like one goal every game over the past handful of games that he wishes he could have had back. Uh, but there were a couple goals during that Dallas game, man, that were that were freak redirections and some guys hitting dimes in the corners of the net that I didn't really blame on him. Um, so I agree with you. I did expect him to have some struggles, and I really don't think he's been as bad as some people are making him out to be. Um, I think if they just continue to play him on a reasonable schedule with Brian Elliott in terms of a balanced schedule, I think he'll be fine. And I still think that Brian Elliott is going to get injured at some point in the next couple of weeks. Mark my words, um, because if he keeps playing like he did against Vegas, he's going to be stretching that groin a little bit too far. That was my biggest concern. You know, I I think the biggest thing, the biggest mistake they made this summer was not addressing the backup goaltender. It's not even that Brian Elliott's bad. I think he's about as good a backup as you can get in terms of playing ability. You know, he's going to give the team a chance to win. You know, he did after Carter Hart went down at the stadium series last year. He came in and he played a whole bunch of games in a row and and played very well and gave him a chance to win. I'm not worried about Elliott's play as much as I am his health. You know, his track record's not great. It hasn't been great for years. And now that he's 34 and has, you know, three major injuries over the last season and a half, I, it's only a matter of time before he gets hurt one way or another here. And that's what worries me about him. Yeah, that's going to be the issue is – when he gets hurt, how does this team respond? You know, can you ride Carter Hart for, I don't know, two weeks straight and then bring up Barube or something? I Ooh. mean, that'll be – that's going to be a nightmare I think when that happens. But um, I think I think Carter Hart is going to get back on. I think he's going to be fine. Um, and I really don't, don't have a problem with him not playing that perfectly right now. I mean – I give prospects a lot of leeway and and young players a lot of leeway when they come into the league. And, you know, being Carter's first year in the NHL, uh, I mean, he had a little bit of a stint last season. But the fact that this is his first time being the number one starter, he's only 21 years old, I give him a lot of slack. Yeah, I, I'm not concerned about Carter Hart's play in the long term. I think he's going to have a hiccup this season, probably more so than not. But uh, it's going to take some time. I'm just concerned about Elliott. You know, I, again, I've been at these Phantoms games. Bruby is awful. I I need to pull up my thesaurus here to get out a better word for that. But <laughs> he just he just looks slow and old. He's not very comfortable. He's trying to play the puck a lot, which is uh, he, can't, he just can't do it. And Alex Lyon, we all know what he is at this point. He's the most average of average AHL starters there are. And he's going to come up and he's going to maybe have one good game but then get blown out of the water for the next few. So, I, I, <laughs> not liking any of their options here if one of these two go down. But, you know, I, I fully expect Elliot at some point to miss some time. Yeah, and I wonder if they're going to be bringing up uh, Sandstrom or, I guess, Ustamenko from the Royals onto the Phantoms roster um, sooner rather than later. Possible. I'm baffled that they ever sent Sandstrom down to begin with. I get they didn't want to ride three goaltenders, but why the hell did you sign Berube then if you knew damn well Ustamenko and Sandstrom were coming over? They want that veteran presence, I'm sure, and that kind of swing guy again. You know, they wanted the, the Mike McKenna, I guess, in case somebody went down, you know, uh, to more of an AHL guy. I guess they trust Berube over Lyon, which I guess I do too, in a sense, because I fucking can't stand Alex Lyon. But, <laughs> uh, you know, 
I don't know. I, I I think Sandstrom should be in the AHL right now getting some reps. I think he's been the worst of the two at the ECHL level. I know he got uh, destroyed during his first game, but yeah, goaltending will be something to watch. I'm sure that'll be a storyline at some point this season. But uh, for right now, you know, you just kind of have to hope that this ton- uh, this tandem rather can can hang in there a little longer. Definitely, yeah, yeah. We will see what happens as long as you know the health with Hart and Elliot's okay. We're going to be riding those guys. So uh, I'm surprised how healthy the team has been so far, except for the mysterious Nolan Patrick. Where, Dan, where do we stand with him right now? Well, I have no idea. And he has taken (laughs) practice. He did accompany the team on the Western Canada trip. He's been uh, at practice off and on for the past couple days. Have not heard anything more than he's still week to week. But, you know, at this point, I have no idea. I mean, he's practicing and traveling with the team, so it must be a step forward. But, you know, in the overall right now, what are we dealing with? And I don't think anybody knows that except Nolan Patrick. Yeah, I was um, I was probing some of the beat writers um, earlier today on Twitter to try to get a response from the organization about Patrick's status and something more than just week to week, which at this juncture really doesn't help us at all. It doesn't tell us anything because honestly – He's been week to week since last June. Um, So (laughs) I think we need a little bit more clarification on what's going on. I did see that he was in the white jersey today during practice, which I guess um, means non-contact as you can't you can't contact anyone in the white jersey. And I mean, I guess I'm glad he's out there. But man, if he's not even taking contact yet, I don't know how close he really is. I yeah, I don't know. I, I I. I have no idea. I, I can't imagine that he's coming back anytime soon, which probably isn't good. But I don't know. He is taking steps forward, but I you know, haven't heard anything more than a week to week at this point. So, I mean, if he's not taking contact yet, I mean, I, so let's say that he magically starts being able to take contact like next week. Don't you have to play for a couple weeks? I mean, he he hasn't had any contact hockey since last April. So I would still think he's a couple of weeks out. Um, at this point, which is, you know, they played well last night and they moved Giroux back to center, but I don't think that's really a long-term solution for the center position. And I'm just getting, I know we talked about this last time, but I'm getting really concerned about the viability of Patrick here. Yeah. I mean, for what it's worth, he is waiver exempt. He's still in his ELC, Mm -hmm. so he could be sent down even if it's just for a rehab stint or, or, you know, for a long period of time to kind of just get a game, uh, get his game back together. But yeah, I, I think the it is fair at this point to question the the long term viability of what Nolan Patrick can bring to the team. And worth noting that the rosters last night they moved Giroux back to center, and Couturier on the second line, Hayes on the third, because they need that center depth because Lawton's not cutting it. I love Lawton and I think he brings a lot to the team, but that's not the role that he's supposed to be in. And you know Nolan Patrick missing is going to put a lot of stress on him. And and if they keep Giroux at center, which you know, he can play very well and he can do, but at this point in his career, that's not what he should be doing. You know, it's kind of a, a domino effect here that's affecting the rest of the team that Nolan Patrick is not available at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge deal. It makes the Kevin Hayes signing all that much more important because you have a legitimate guy that can play basically up and down the lineup in the center position that is a true center. You don't have to worry about him. Um as far as Giroux in that in that 1C role, yeah, I mean, they could probably ride that for a couple of weeks here. I don't know. Um, I thought he looked fine there, although this was interesting today. I don't know if 
uh, you saw this quote, but Elaine Vigneault had mentioned um, he was kind of discussing um, the performance of the team against Vegas, and he kind of had a, a bit of a slight in terms of uh, JVR, Giroux, and Voracek uh, in terms of their play. I, I forget what the exact uh, quote was, but it was something like, you know, we expect them to be better or they know what to do, but they're not doing it, something like that, uh, which I thought was pretty interesting. And I don't know if that had to do with Giroux being at center or not or just kind of highlighting the highest paid players, um, but I thought that was pretty interesting. I We brought this up on, on ONB, which we recorded before this show, and for the, I was frantically trying to find I, – I saw the quote and I read it, but I didn't catch which beat rotor had. I've been looking for the ever since. I can't find it, but – he said the second line is very strong. And they plans to keep uh, plans on keeping it together for a while, which is good because the uh, Konechny Lindblom Kateri line has by far not only produced the most offense, but has just been the strongest, most complete line out there. He liked the third line with Kevin Hayes and Farabee, and he even credited the fourth line with Chris Stewart playing well. So, and then he's like, "Well, the first line, you know, they need to get it together or something because th- those are the three the the three people that just can't get anything going." You know, Voracek had that one good game. Uh, well. You know, one scoring game against the Edmonton Oilers, and but JVR still goalless and pointless, even with 35 shots on goal. And uh, Giroud really has not been that noticeable on the score sheet either, mainly because he's on the wrong side of the fucking power play. But you know, <laughs> yeah, he he was. I I can't find the quote. I can't figure out who. Uh, so who I found it, it, Dan. So here it is. He said today. I mean, you've got three experienced guys that have been around that should know the right way to play and have to play it. So, you know, it's not it's not really, you know, like extremely aggressive, but I have not heard a coach say that before that didn't have an ulterior message. Yeah, he, he's definitely kind of telling them to get their shit together, I think, and, and start scoring some goals, which, I mean, in theory, the Giroux centering Voracek and James and Reamsdyke should be one of your most potent offensive lines that you can form, and... They ain't doing anything. So it, it is a concern that your top guys that are all making 7 to $8 million a year aren't getting anything done. Yeah. I know you and Anthony touched on it uh, the other day, too, on your show. But, you know, the team is <laughs> definitely going nowhere. Last night aside, last night is more of an anomaly. It's an exception rather than the rule to have some of those depth guys scoring so much. Um but you're going to have to have those guys. I mean, you need you need Giroux to be a point-per-game player. You need uh, Voracek to be a point-per-game player. You need to get 30 goals out of James Van Riemsdyk. Uh, and you got to figure out a way to do that. And, and, I mean, I don't know what to say about those guys. I'm sure that they're trying to, you know, be good guys in the locker room and keep the defensive structure in play, which I don't even know if they've done a good job at that. Um, but they need to produce offensively by, you know, whatever means necessary – because if they stay in another eight to ten game slump here or something, I mean, shit, they're going to be in a lot of trouble. Van Riemsdyk leads the, leads the team in shots with 35. He has zero goals. Claude Giroux, second on the team in shots with 24. He has zero goals. Uh, Couturier, Hayes, both have two. Lindblom, uh, Shane Gostaspierre, 15 shots, zero goals. Travis Sanheim, 14 shots, zero goals. You know, you need – those guys right there are supposed to be the core of your offense. And they're not scoring. You know, Konechny has been the, the hot shot thus far. Four goals, six assists, ten points in seven games. Lindblom, four goals, two assists, six points in seven games. And Couturier has two goals, three assists, five points in seven games. I mean, outside of those three, I mean, Ivan Provar has had a pretty decent start of the season. Niskanen adding more offense than we already expected him to. But uh-huh. with the exception of them, not a whole lot's happening here. 
Kevin Hayes has had a lot of golden opportunities, and I really, really like what he's brought to the table. I know I was very mean to him this summer, but uh, yeah, I still hate that contract. <laughs> I still hate that contract that's going to bite him sooner or later, but... I really, really like what Kevin Hayes has brought to the table. He has two goals. He's had a couple golden opportunities. He has 21 shots as well and two goals. So, you know, your top stars are, quote-unquote, snake-bitten. I know that was the, the term that's been thrown around a lot lately. But, you know, oh, they have a lot of shots, Daniel, and the team's shot metrics are great, Daniel. But listen. If they're not scoring, they're not winning games. And that's why they're losing these games big time. You know, it's the moral victories. I don't care if they won on the stat sheet. If they're not winning, if they're not putting that W in the win column every night, then they're not going to win games at the end of the day. And they're not going to win the season. They're not going to make the playoffs. And here we are again with their thumb up our ass for another year. So it all <laughs> kind of comes together here. Yeah. And one thing I noticed about, about that Dallas game too, and I, I'm sure this was mentioned, was the lack of the high danger um, high danger chances and getting in high danger areas. Um, you need to do that consistently. I mean, we've seen Travis Konechny has done a pretty good job of that. That's why he has been very good at scoring this year. Um, he seems to be getting uh, in front of the net. He seems to be getting in the slot. Um, he's getting shots from areas that he has a chance to put the puck in the net. And other guys aren't really doing that. I haven't I honestly, I haven't really seen, I haven't seen Couturier, I haven't seen Giroux, Voracek, or JVR, or Ghost get in really any high danger areas during the start of this season, um, which is a problem. And I don't know if that's a mentality thing where they're trying to distribute and make plays, or if they're not willing to go to some of those more greasy areas. Uh, I'm not sure what that is, but I think from a positional standpoint, we're not seeing those guys get where they need to be. Yeah, and you mentioned the Grittiers, the two players that have been willing to do that, Lindblom and, Kinter, uh, Lindblom and Konechny, and no surprise, they lead the team in points. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and they'll continue to do that. I mean, those guys, and even Kevin Hayes, I mean, he's, yeah. I think he only has like two goals, but whenever he has the puck, he's taking it to the fucking net. Yeah. Like, he's not messing around on the half wall. He's not trying to dipsy-do some bullshit by the blue line. He is taking the fucking puck to the fucking net. And, I mean, why Why does Jake Voracek not do that? He's a huge player. He's like, what, like six foot three, like 215, 220, like, and he's got, like, tremendous foot speed. Like, dude, take the damn puck to the net. Uh, you know, I see him skating around in circles 50 feet away from the net all the time. Um, I don't know why they don't have that instinct. It's just I, I think it's an instinctual thing and maybe, you know, through more of the chalk talk type of, of practices that AV is going through, he can instill that in some of these guys. Um, but they they need a mentality change with the way that they handle the puck. Yeah, and and that's kind of the conclusion I came to. You know, I put out a string of very angry tweets, you know, after they lost all those games and you know, it's a mentality thing. It's a mindset thing. This is These are the people that haven't had to work for anything for five years under Dave Haxtell, and quite frankly, even longer than that, under Laviolette and, and Craig Berube. This is a mindset thing that needs to change, and quite frankly, long-term, I think the only way you change it is moving these guys off the roster and letting other guys play, even when it comes to trading or, or letting your uh, young kids come up and play. Something has to get done with the mindset. I think the only way that happens is to get rid of the dead weight. Yeah, I mean, I've been... It's interesting you mentioned that, Dan. I've been on the boat of finding more of the alpha type of player, yeah. and it, it's hard to kind of describe exactly what that is. But 
I guess more of an aggressive, um, in your face, um, you know, type of person that is going to not just lead by example, but lead by force almost. Um, and not to say that you need a lot of those guys, but I think you need some of them in a contact sport like hockey. And I just don't know if the current leadership has that type of style. Um, and I think that's been an issue. Now, obviously, like you've mentioned, we are in a transition period here. This is a transition year that thing, things could change. But I don't get the sense from guys like Giroux and Voracek and Van Riemsdyk and Gostaspair and Couturier that these are the type of alpha leaders that you probably need in a locker room in hockey. And I think Kevin Hayes is a good example of that. I think he's come mm. in and he's played a very strong game, a very strong 200-foot game. And, you know, what we saw on behind the glass and what we've kind of heard from the players in between is that he is trying to be a locker room presence. And mm. I know people don't want to hear the word intangibles, but Chris Stewart, you know, he's a locker room guy. And I know, oh, well, Daniel, he, he sucks. He, uh, whatever. I don't give a fuck. But listen, he's going to bring more to the team than just fist fighting. And even in the fist fighting, it sparks the team. And it... it, it it's not something you're going to find on a spreadsheet or your analytics, and because of that, people don't want to acknowledge existence, but you need leaders in the room. And guys like Jake Voracek, who don't seem like any kind of leader, you know, are just here making a ton of money to do nothing. Sure, he's going to rack up the season. I, again, people go, well, Daniel, James uh, Van Riemsdyk is going to score eventually. Well, yeah, it's true. Of course he will. It's hockey. Of course someone's going to go in eventually. But what is he bringing to the team that – is helping overall, and I don't think that's any. I don't think there. He's anything right now. He's making seven million dollars a year for what? You know, for a couple goals. And sure, Voracek's probably going to finish the season with sixty to eighty points, like he always does. But what's he bringing besides a couple secondary assists on the power play? Not a whole lot. Yeah, these guys. I mean, you're going to need them to not only only produce in their own right, which they really haven't so far. But assuming they do. You also need them to elevate the play of the guys around them. Um, I mean, you look at other at other like superstar players around the league, and they tend to bring up the guys around them. Um, this is just the first thing that comes to mind. Obviously, the Flyers don't have a guy like McDavid on the team, but you look at a player like James Neal, who is on who is on the Oilers right now, and I mean, I mean, my God, that guy is having an insane season. Because you're getting other good players that are helping him elevate. It's a good fit. It's a good fit. It's a good mix. And I'm sure there are much better examples out there than that. Um, but you need these players, these core veteran players that are the elite players on the team to elevate everyone else around them. Um, I don't know if they're going to be able to do that because they haven't really done that in the past and currently aren't. But um, that is definitely something that I've had an eye out for over the years and will continue to do so. And it's another bad example, but Crosby is one of them. Granted, we're, sure, yeah. we brought two of the best players in the world, you know, to compare here. But, you know, he's a guy. When was the last time Crosby had like a decent line mate? You know, it's been years. He's putting out there with a bunch of prospects and, and guys that aren't supposed to be good, and he turns them into goddamn stars, you know, because he's really good at what he does, and he teaches them and mentors them, and he learns, and, and they benefit because of him. And especially with all the kids that are here and are going to be here in the coming years, I don't think that's it. You know, I, I'm pretty sure Giroux is that guy. But other than that, I don't think you have it right now, and I think that's why this team lacks an identity and just seems lost overall right now. 
Yeah, like there are moments and like, you know, I'm I'm kind of just speaking from the gut here too, but like whenever you played sports as a kid and stuff, and I know you played a bunch of sports I did too growing up and whatnot, like, you know, you go to your summer camps and you get your coaching, you do your practices and stuff, but there are moments when you're in a practice and, you know, somebody does something wrong or stupid and the leader of the team will come over and correct that person and say, you know, hey, you need to be over here and do this and kind of take charge and take direction and take ownership of of the failure that's going on with that system or with that particular player. And I am sure that that happens in professional sports across the board through every sport where you have these team leaders that will go in and kind of correct and take corrective measures on their own because they don't want the team to fail under their watch. They don't want the team to fail under their leadership. And I don't know if you have a guy on this team that's going to do that where somebody, I don't know, messes up in a practice or or is continually not adhering to what the coach is saying. And that player goes over to uh, the other player and says, no, you need to do it like this, and we're going to do it like this for the next hour until we all click and we all get it right. And that's the kind of example, that's what I kind of mean by the alpha, alpha player, that I don't get a sense that this team has. And it's an interesting point going back to Chris Stewart. You know, maybe they sure. brought Chris Stewart in as a – you know, locker room leader because the guys that are supposed to be those leaders, like Jake Voracek, aren't getting it done. You know, fans don't want Chris Stewart on the team, but they also don't want to go to guys like Jake Voracek. But one is here because the other one can't do his job, and I think that's what's going on here. Yeah, I I think that is actually dead on, Dan. I think that there, I think that has a lot to do with it because you see how afraid. AV is and Fletcher is to dispose of Chris Stewart. I mean, my God, he was on a PTO for like weeks. They didn't sign him until they got whoever the hell that was, Andy Walinski, who was off uh, off the injured list so they could waive him to get salary cap room uh, for Chris Stewart. But it does seem like that. It seems like you have this veteran core, these veteran elite players that lack that one personality, emotional characteristic that the team is trying to fill via the 13th forward or bringing in veteran defensemen for a year or two at a time to try to, I guess, bridge that gap. It's an interesting observation, and I think that has legs. Yeah, and and uh, again, I'm sure this is stuff we'll see in transition. We're early in the year. Uh, I probably won't see much uh, action until the trade deadline. I think that'll kind of tell... You know, it depends where the flies are at at that point as well uh, in terms of shaking anything up. But it, it, it's a process. It, we're in a transition year. I firmly believe that. And based on how Alevino has been steering the ship thus far, I think he believes that as well. You know, he's been giving people chances, much like Shane Goss Bear, who's, you know, had a couple rough games. And um, he just kind of I, – I think Alevino is the guy for this job. And it's just, it's just going to take time for it to happen. Yeah, as we go through, I think we'll have a pretty good sense as to what this team is by around Thanksgiving or so. Um, so, you know, quite a few games to go until that point. But I am fairly confident that AV is going to structure things to weed guys out by the at least the midpoint of the season, by the trade deadline and by the end of the season. And to say, look, I've seen this team from afar. We didn't make really any major subtractions in the offseason this past summer but let's see what happens under av's system this year and then we may see some more substantial movement yeah i think depending on how this season goes the trade deadline and this summer could be uh, filled with some 
big core changing moves. Definitely, definitely. And honestly, I I'd like to see something like that. I've just seen a lot of these guys for a really, really long time. And I just kind of want to see somebody different at this point. <laughs> How long has Jake Vorchick been here? Like nine, ten years now? This is his 20, ninth season. 2011, I believe. Yeah, this is. I'm pretty sure this is ninth season with the nine, Flyers. Yeah. How many guys stick around with a team for eight or nine years? Nobody. I mean, you have to be. I, I, I think we brought this up like last year or something, but you have to be an unbelievably amazing and important player to a franchise to be here for nine years. I mean, that is insane. And to me, I don't think Jake Voracek's a bad player, but I don't think he's gotten to the status of, you know, the Mount Rushmore of Flyerdom where he, he deserves to be here for nine. I mean, he's going to be here throughout the, you know, through the season. So he'll finish at least nine seasons with the Flyers. And I just think that is just an overcommitment. I mean, I think it's a franchise running scared that they are just so afraid of not being able to replace that point production that they want to hold on to him for this long. Now, granted, his contract is definitely playing into that, which Hextall had gifted him uh, when he had that one career year in the contract year. But at the end of the day, I mean, even if the team has to take a step backward, I mean, just just give me something new. And They've drafted generally well enough that you would hope that some of these guys can fill those shoes. Jake Voracek's contract runs through 2024. Jesus Christ. That's a nice one. Yeah. I mean, at some point, you know, is it worth cutting the dead weight now with guys like Jake Voracek and Ben Reamsdijk and potentially losing out on some point scoring and maybe falling a little short this year? But having guys like... Ratcliffe and Frost and Farabee make up that points in the long term and you're not having this much money tied into three, four players and you can use that money for other guys that could make a bigger impact on the team. It's just, I I think it's time to evaluate the positives and negatives and the negatives outweigh the positives, which I'm pretty sure they do, or at least it's close. I think it's time to cut some of the ties with the players that I think feel comfortable here. And that's the thing, Dan, is that it's a critical point because you can't get rid of players when they have no value like the Flyers did with Wayne Simmons last year. You have to have a cohesive vision and understand how these guys are going to coalesce with each other and how to build something properly. You can't just say, oh, well, we have some good players now and we're going to try to win with them. But then once it's apparent that we have no freaking chance of winning with them and they're not that good anymore, then we'll try to get rid of them for something, for like a fourth-round pick in Tyler Pitlick. I mean, like you can't do that. You have to have better vision. And of course, is it going to sting up front? Probably. But at the end of the day, you have to have the vision to build a team in the right way. And I don't think holding on to these guys until the last second is the right way to do it, which they've done. That's exactly what they've done over the years. Wayne Simmons is a great example of it. And they're unfortunately, I mean, I've had the opinion now for, for over five years that there is a disconnect um, uh, between the way they're building and the Drew Voracek era. I think there's too much time in between those guys, and you know, Hart and Provorov and Sanheim and Patrick, even if he comes back as the newer, as a newer generation, and Drew is the older generation. 
And in my opinion, there's too much distance there. I, I never think that they're going to connect the dots on that. And five years ago, I was screaming about making a change at that point, and they didn't do it. And now, you know, we're seeing, like we saw with Wayne Simmons, and we may see that with other players, with Drew and Voracek and, Ram, and Van Riemsdyk, that, um, that they're selling too low on them, and they're not able to get anything back to build for the future. Uh, and that's that vision that I'm hoping that I thought that Fletcher would act on in the offseason. He didn't really because he's still trying to fit those puzzle pieces together. But um, I think they're going to have to act on it because I, you know, for as for as good as as the team is and as much positives as we have right now going, which we do. Um, I, I mean, this team is not a Stanley Cup contender as currently constructed. It's been something I've noticed for a long time that you were kind of talking about that the old core versus the new core don't line up and something that I think a lot of people on Twitter believe that it will and they're going to click and they're going to win a cup with Giroux and Voracek and this current core but you know that's how I got the name Negative Dan to begin with is because I was pointing this shit out and people go you're just being negative but you know, it shouldn't take a genius to look just at their ages alone and how the NHL is trending in a younger direction. Giroux's 31, Voracek's 30, Van Riemsdyk's 30. You know, your core right now, you know, Farabee's 19, Morgan Frost is 20, Carter Hart's 21. Most of your defense is in their early 20s. You know, it's it's an age differential that I don't think is going to work. You know, Giroux has probably passed, passed his prime. Voracek has most certainly passed his prime. Van Riemsdyk is seeming like he's on the downward spiral after this. You know, you put a lot of money in Kevin Hayes, who's 27, and he's going to be here for a long time. But, you know, who knows how much longer, you know, I, fuck, I don't want to shoot him down already. But, you know, he's 27. You know, how much longer does he have in his prime? You're just, you have an old core here that you're trying to build around. And again, this is the Ron Hextall mentality of, we, we got to keep the fans happy, so we're going to keep the old core together while building around it. Well, now you left the next guy in charge here with a, an old expensive core and a young guys that, need to push forward and they're going to get signed to their own big contracts in the coming years and you really are kind of handcuffing yourself here and that's why I'm worried about these contracts and I know people don't want to hear about contracts I rant about it all summer long you know I just it it shouldn't take a genius to look at these numbers the players ages and their contracts and say man something's going to happen here where you may have to give up a young player just to maintain the contracts of the old guys and this old core right now is just I think it's doing a lot more harm than it is good yeah, I don't think they're quite good enough. And I think that the Flyers management has been trying to kind of mimic what the Boston Bruins have done with a older core, so to speak, of of Chara and Rask and um, and Bergeron and Marchand and now even Pasternak, who's a younger player, but still kind of part of that elite group. And those guys, I mean, they're better than what the Flyers have had. And I think that they that the organization thought that the Drew, the Voracek, Simmons, Coots, Shen even were were at that level, but they never could get there. They never could establish themselves as as a playoff contending uh, elite veteran core. Um, they never got there, and and the organization is still kind of holding on to that thought. And um, I, I agree. I just don't think they're going to get there with it. And the more time that passes, you know, sure, we have, you know, connections to these guys because they've been here for so long and they've had some good moments over the years. But, man, at the end of the day, I just don't want to see them get nothing back for them. I mean, because that's going to be one of the worst things you can do because you really do need to supplement 
the new core and the new guys that are coming up. Yeah. And, you know, we saw it with, with Simmons, you know, they waited about a year and a half too long to get rid of the guy. And what did they do because of it? They just, they, they suffered. So it's unfortunate. I, I, I don't know what the answer is here. I don't know if there is a a, a long-term answer here, but I don't know. I just got to, I, I think it's going to come down to moving people eventually, and it's just a matter of uh, when they end up doing that. But, you know, I, I think with Lavigneau at the wheel, things will get figured out much quicker than they would under Ron Hextall. Yeah, yeah, I think I think he's the right guy for the job. I think he has, he has the gravitas, he's got the experience, and um, I have confidence that he's going to tell Chuck, okay, this guy stays, this guy goes. I don't think he's going to be shy about that. Yeah, I don't think so either. I think it's just a matter of time again, going back to the transition year, and just a matter of uh, working through some things. But um, anything else you want to get off your chest tonight? No, no, I think that was uh, I think that was a pretty cathartic experience, Dan. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> that was a good one. That was a good one. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, where can people find you on Twitter? Sure, I'm at M, like my first name, Mike M Death and Taxes at M Death and Taxes. And I'm Dan the Flyer Fan, at Dan the Flyer Fan, at Brotherly Puck, at Brotherly underscore pod, at National Puck and at National Pod Net. I'll be back tomorrow night with the Angry Negative Show with guests Bobby Thomas and Dan Silver. We will have a showdown with the analytics that I am uh, incredibly looking forward to. It's going to be a fun one. So make sure you check that one out, everybody. Uh, new OMB podcast up as well. Quick episode to uh, catch everybody up on the recent roster moves. But uh, until tomorrow, everybody, goodbye and good night.